global debt is at its highest levels in history. How can borrowers and lenders protect themselves from the effects of financial collapse? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. In the U.S. alone, debt stands at 3.5 times GDP. Reasons include years of low interest rates and an apparently insatiable hunger by investors and businesses for risk. Credit and supply chain professionals need to take steps now to shield themselves from the consequences of massive debtor default. But how can they accurately assess the risk, let alone mitigate its impact? For that matter, what exactly is debt? When is it a good thing? And when is it bad? How does it get out of control? These and many other questions are addressed by my guest today, Jerry Flum, founder and CEO of Credit Risk Monitor, a web-based publisher of financial information. We'll talk about how business should be responding to what he calls the most serious debt crisis that the world has ever seen. Specifically, we'll cover the debt situation as it affects procurement professionals. In a world overrun by debt, lack of preparation is not an option. So here is my conversation with Jerry Flum. Jerry Flum, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here, Bob. Jerry, you describe a situation by which we are now experiencing the highest ever debt levels on a global basis, 3.5 times GDP. Is that a global number? And if so, how much is that in dollar terms? No, that's the U.S., Bob. In fact, it's worth around the world. Yeah, the U.S. actually, as awful as it is, the U.S. is better than many countries around the world. And to put that 3.5 times GDP in, in total debt, in 1929, 1930, was roughly 2.5 times. So this is pretty pretty staggering. Wow. And I might add, just uh, we'll round it out to make everybody uh, set the pace for everybody. The all-time high on the U.S. is roughly about 208, 207, 208 when it was at roughly 3.8 times. You know, we're talking about a, a number that kind of, I want to put it in perspective. That means that there's $3.5 to $3.8 of total debt for every dollar of GDP. And that's very, very staggering. Heavily leveraged. Yeah, and I, and I want to just, if we could, I'm going to take a second if you don't mind. What is debt and what's the importance of it? When GDP grows, the basic drivers of GDP are population. In other words, more people, we need more cars. Uh, number two is the efficiency of production or how effectively can the same amount of people produce the same amount of cars or do we can we produce slightly more cars so we have a growth in productivity. Population growth in the U.S. is roughly about 1% a year. Uh, productivity growth right now is about 1% a year, uh, slightly less. The real driver of GDP is incremental debt. In other words, debt allows a 
company or a human being who doesn't have enough in savings or doesn't have enough in current income to go out and get something, a product or a service that they want to get and they can't afford it. So what they do is they borrow. In other words, if I needed a refrigerator because the gasket on my refrigerator was a little weak, I'm going to try and patch it up. In three years, I'm going to buy a refrigerator. If I can borrow the money to buy a refrigerator, I'm going to buy it now. And so what that does, it moves a future purchase of a service or a need into the present tense. And you could say that we are we're 60, years, 60 odd years into the age of credit. And it's it's been a boon to us to a certain degree, right? <laughs> right. This is the largest boon in the history of mankind. Now you're describing a situation that is not necessarily positive anymore. How did we get to this place? How did we get to the point where debt was so huge? Debt has uh, always been a, a driver. Of what's the natural predator for incremental debt? In other words, what stops people from borrowing a company from borrowing? It's an interest rate. It's the cost of the debt. That's the natural wolf in the wilderness that prevents it to get excessive. And what's happening now is in the last 10, 12, 13 years is the governments got into such trouble that what they did was they forced rates artificially low. And by forcing the rates lower and lower and lower, and they made it easier and easier for people and companies to borrow money. And so that natural predator was artificially withheld or curtailed by central banks all over the world. And not because they're bad people. Uh, back in 2007, 2008, the world was looking at a catastrophe uh, from all the previous policies. And so this was the only thing really available to the central banks. In other words, this is not like taxes, which are a function of how Congress acts or the individual legislatures around the world. Uh, central banks can raise, for the most part, have the power to raise and lower interest rates as their mm -hmm. major monetary response. And so uh, the U.S. central bank lowered rates and they're dramatically. Let me, let me tell you how low they are. If you go around the world, we now have 10 to $11 trillion of negative yielding debt being issued by government. And by the way, that $11 trillion is on a world GDP of roughly $80, $85 trillion. And what this means is somebody gives a dollar to one of these governments, and that government is going to give them back $0.98 cents in three or five years. So when you look at it, you say to yourself, like, my God, that's kind of a stupid thing to be doing. It is unless you are really concerned that there's no place that you can get your money back safely. And so getting back 98 cents is a good enough incentive for you to give this government a dollar. And basically, it's a very negative, negative look at the world. It's basically a deflationary or maybe even a depressionary point of view. It's saying that 98 cents, when I get it back in three years, is going to be able to buy me a dollar five or a dollar ten or a dollar twenty mm -hmm. worth of goods and services. So when you look at cash around the world, you can view the return as what's the interest rate I'm getting. Or if you are in a deflationary, you can say, hey, my real return is it will buy more. I don't care about the day-to-day -day interest rate. I'm interested in that $0.98 cents being able to buy a dollar five or $1.10. That's the basic background. This is a concerted central bank play around the world because the world is overrun in debt. When we talk about debt, does it make any sense to separate out sovereign debt, corporate debt, and individual debt? And if so, which of those is the most dangerous? Great question. Well, and they're all very interrelated.
their specific genre of where they come from, but they are always arbitraged against each other. In other words, they can't get too significantly out of whack in terms of the rate. Sovereign debt is the king of the hill because obviously in sovereign debt, uh, the risk of not getting paid is less than the risk of not getting paid on an individual debt or junk bond or a junk loan debt. So sovereign debt is the king of the hill, usually the lowest interest rate, the risk of loss is the least. Junk debt, I mean debt issued in the form of bonds mm -hmm. or loans from companies which are, for the most part, a very, very high risk of not being able to pay back. They can borrow money. Right now in the U.S., we have roughly about $2.5 trillion of junk loans and junk debt. And this is extraordinarily risky. And this, if you go back to 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years, that's up from zero. The important thing is that it is such a huge amount compared to GDP. And those guys are going to go at it at a business at a pretty high rate. And people who work there, people who sell to those guys or buy from those guys are going to have some pretty interesting difficulty. But I think that the, the thing, and I think your question is a great question, because what happens is this is all interrelated. If, in fact, this debt starts to default and, and companies go out of business, the real overriding thing in the background is that we have to remember with all this debt out there, three and a half times GDP, when that debt, if it comes down in value five or ten percent, it means that because it's three and a half times the GDP, it's the equivalent of three and a half times 10%. It's the equivalent of 30 to 35% of wealth that contracts and goes away and compared to a GDP of 19 trillion. In other words, we're talking about a wealth commutation of 30% equivalent to yeah. GDP. I'm not saying that's the whole GDP is going to come down 30%, but what I'm saying to you is that contraction will be huge and people will therefore start to save. That's the natural and important response and the correct response. But if everybody starts to save, mm -hmm. then they don't spend. And if they don't spend, then we have severe overcapacity all over the world on a scale yeah. that's never been seen. And by the way, just again, put it in perspective. I said to you that the uh, debt levels in the U.S. and around the world are at record levels that have never, ever, ever been seen. And that is the same thing I'm saying to you. Negative interest rates have never been seen and never been seen on the scale and size and duration in the history of mankind that we are dealing with now. So this is not a normal run-of-the-mill problem. And this is not a normal problem from 208. This is a lot worse. And then real quickly, we do have individual debt, credit card debt. Is that at serious levels as well? And what impact does that have on this whole thing? Yes. Yes, it is. Well, uh, it's part of the debt if those people get into trouble and start uh, defaulting. You know, Bob, what I'm asking people to look at now is a little different than the normal look at debt. Normally, when you look at debt, you look at the people who borrow the money and they get into trouble or they go out of business, they default. And yeah. it means really awful times. I'm also saying this time around, because it's so large, you need to look at the people who borrowed the money and you got to look at the people who lent the money. And this time around, it's a really good shot that the people who lent the money 
are also not going to get paid back. And this is a huge scale, not just the borrowers. It's now just the borrowers and lenders because mm-hmm. it's so massive. It's consumer debt. It's corporate debt. It's governmental debt. It's municipal debt, uh, municipal bond markets. Uh, personally, I believe that the uh, default rate looking out in the future will be quite high. They just don't have the money to meet the pensions. It's just not there. You have entire countries like China that's massive growth of the last couple of decades appears to have been fueled almost entirely by debt. You got to wonder what's going to happen there. Well, debt is a yeah, yeah, yeah. contraction on scale. Let's put this in perspective. I'm not making the argument, nor should anybody even assume it. There's going to be a China. There's going to be a United States. There's going to be a world. It just means that over the next X five, ten years, things could be really very, very bad. And China is one of the catalysts and a little more unknown only because essential planning is wonderfully effective and efficient on how one expands under it compared to a democracy or a market-driven economy. But it also means that it can get excessively wrong because there's no competing arguments or economic conditions that contract mistakes and, and make them smaller. So, one, the data coming out of China is always suspect, and then the massiveness of not having a good counterplay to excessiveness in China compared to democracies and free markets means that the potential there is larger. Amazing, though, that so many investors are short volatility these days. It's, it's, it's like they never learn. Yeah, yeah, Bob, you're on the money. I mean, it's part of the human condition. Debt is a very alluring thing. If, if you can borrow at a rate that when you take the money in, you can make money in excess of the rate you're borrowing at, uh, for the human being in general, uh, a business guy uh, and corporation, they're going to mm-hmm. borrow. And the government's artificialness in keeping the rates low uh, set up this wonderful equation for excess. And they got it. There's uh, very few places to put money now. So you put it in riskier and risky things because you need a rate of return. If you if you have savings and you're getting in government uh, short-term paper, you're getting a half a point or a point. For many savers, that's not enough. So they take 10% of the money and they put it in high-yield junk bond mm-hmm. funds. And so massive amounts of money go into that. And the junk bonds and the junk debt and junk loans here and all over the world are staggering. Meanwhile, so, those companies just sitting on so much cash at the same time while they borrow money at low interest rates. And again, it's, it's a strange thing. Based on this whole scenario, a very scary scenario that you've laid out for us today, what can companies do? They can't prevent things from happening, but they can mitigate the risk of being affected by it. So what are some steps they can take to mitigate risk? By the way, I'm so thrilled that you're raising it in that sense because uh, I don't have a pill or a magic button that gets any company or any person out of the game. This is too big, too massive. The key in situations like this is to mitigate the risk because the surviving companies and the people who come through this okay, uh, when this thing ends, will be in fantastic shape. So the key is uh, to mitigate the risk because lots of companies will go out of business. And those that survive are going to be in a wonderful position because there will be, uh, for the first time, the amount 
of demand and the amount of supply will be more in equilibrium. So the first rule is how do I mitigate the risk, not totally get out of it? And I think the single most important thing to do for companies now, I'm not talking about you uh, people, I'm talking about really more companies, is the first thing is to get a system in place that is monitoring all the companies that you're either buying from or selling to so that you can assess the gradient of risk, the financial risk in each one of these companies. So you need to get a service and a monitoring so you can prioritize who you want to sell to and who you want to buy from. And you want to be able to look at competitors of if you're selling to people who are in super risk, you want to find other people to sell to or take your promotional dollars and use it with the much more economically stable companies. And if you're buying uh, as a procurement man or person, then you need to get yourself alternatives lined up and move your sources of supply to more financially stable companies because they will survive. The, the key, I think, is going to be the amount of debt at each individual. In other words, if it's a supplier, you want to take your industry and start to rank it by risk and debt. And those that have the most amount of debt, and if you have a good monitoring service that's then telling you who's the highest risk, uh, those are companies that you want to supplement if you are doing uh, using them and try and find other companies to add to the, your supply side. One, recognizing that the risk is beyond anything the world has ever seen before. One, accepting and understanding that, and then monitoring all your suppliers and starting to set up a prioritization. And therefore, you'll come out of it, and you'll be in super, super shape if you can mitigate all this stuff. A lot of people focus on this idea of monitoring your suppliers upstream, but you are advising us to monitor in both directions of a supply chain, upstream and downstream to your customer base as well, right? Here's what we teach our subscribers. We allow them to monitor the biggest or, or customers of their supplier. But you need to get one step ahead of the game. If you're monitoring somebody you're selling to who you're concerned about, you also want to take their 10 or 15 largest customers and you want to monitor them. In other words, this is going to require almost a two or three step scale function. And so we're trying to get guys to move supply agreements uh, to alternatives or take customers and start to move our sales uh, efforts to other customers. And it's easy for a guy like me to say, hey, get new customers, get new suppliers. If you have enough lead time and you understand exactly what's going on, then you need to be ahead of your competitors. You don't need to be number one in the race. What you want to be is you want to be number one through five or one through four, because uh, that's what survival gigs are going to be about. Jerry, where are you getting the information? When you use the word monitoring, it can't just be based on self-reporting by the companies in question. You've got to go beyond that. Where's the info coming from? We collect data from all over the world, and we are in real time monitoring uh, public companies all over the world. And we have uh, something called the Frisk score, but they are 96% predictive of bankruptcy in the next 12 months. And we do enormous financial research. And we have huge amounts of financial spreads and data and ratio analysis. We bring in uh, Moody's, S&P, and Fitch. We run all kinds of analysis uh, going on uh, the interrelationship of all the ratios of profitability. And we are also crowdsourcing these huge amount of credit 
educated and, and, and purchasing professionals on our site. So 96%, that's pretty good. There's always going to be that percentage, though, the 4%, 5%, the so-called unknown unknowns. So we always have to be ready for something we did not see coming, right? Look, there's fraud, depending on the skill of the fraud. Pretty hard to pick it up. There's uh, human catastrophe or nature catastrophe. There's the vagaries that are just uh, random, and random is random. And uh, so there's always going to be that. So it sounds like what you're saying here is you're saying that companies can emerge stronger from this type of situation than they were before. So it's more than resilience. It's what Nassim Taleb would call anti-fragile. It's where you actually benefit from the crisis. Absolutely. Talib is on the money. I agree with you. It's an anti-fragile argument in the sense you want to have multiplicity of places where you are because we're really dealing with an element of randomness. And I would say more with Talib, he's really talking about the amount of the debt out there is causing a randomness now mm -hmm. uh, that the only way you can protect yourself is a multiplicity of everything. And those relying on a single expert or an expert uh, is not going to be as good as crowdsourcing a great deal of information. All right. Well, listen, Jerry Flum, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to kind of paint a picture for us. It's not particularly a pleasant one, but you've given us some advice on how we can uh, deal with it and how we can mitigate the risk. Thank you for being <laughs> with us, Jerry. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure. That was my conversation with Jerry Flum of Credit Risk Monitor, talking about how to cope with the global debt crisis. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.